You are listening to a message from City Church, located in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. For more information on City Church, or for additional resources, including service times, recommended readings, and additional audio, please visit citychurchpa.org. So, as noted earlier, I'm not Raphael, although I've been told I resemble him a little bit. Um, He, yeah, so Larry was talking a little bit about um, Raphael's PhD thesis. Um, And so I thought I would talk to you a little bit about who he wrote about, Athanasius. How many people here know who Athanasius is? Okay, yes, Larry, we know. (laughs) Okay, yeah, so Athanasius was an early church father in around the, the late third to the early fourth century. And he was a staunch reformer, or not reformer, sorry, a staunch defender of the Trinitarian God. And so he defended over and over the doctrine that God is three in one. And specifically, he defended that Jesus was both God and man. And for his beliefs in this, during the time, the church was actually very unfaithful to this teaching, and he was exiled multiple times into the desert and in different places because he was a defender of this biblical truth. And Athanasius is a great example of someone being faithful to an unfaithful church. And in our text today, we come to the climax of this section where God is being faithful to an unfaithful Israel. They exchanged the truth for a lie and worshiped a golden calf instead of worshiping God They worshiped the creation instead of the creator. But today we see that God chose to remain faithful to his promise to Israel and he restored his covenant with them. So at this point in the story, Moses is back up on the mountain um, with God where he's interceding with Israel again and God renews his covenant with his people and calls them to worship him alone. And so my main point for this sermon and what's really been the main point of this whole section in Exodus is that God is faithful even though we are unfaithful. And specifically, we'll look at three ways that God is faithful, through his faithful intercessor, through his faithful works, and through his faithful warning. And so first we'll look at God's faithful intercessor. And so throughout this story in Exodus, we've seen Moses provide through Moses. So Moses was God's provision for Israel. He was God's chosen representative to Pharaoh to let the people free. He was God's chosen representative to Israel for the laws that God is giving to Moses. And now we see that he is Israel's representative to God as their intercessor. And he's praying and pleading with them over with God to um, stay faithful to Israel and to forgive them for what they've done. And then as this tension's been going on of what God's gonna do with Israel, he commands Moses to make two new tablets and to come up to the mountain. And so Moses is in this, this eager expectation that God is going to renew the covenant and remain faithful to, Mo- to, to Israel. And so we see as God goes back up that he reveals his glory to Moses in the section prior to this that I'm going to read where he reveals his name to Moses where he says, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. 
maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So at this, Moses does the one thing that makes sense, which is to to immediately bow down and worship God. There isn't really another response to this when you see God's glory in that way. And so he humbles himself before him and he immediately asks for after that to, um, for God to forgive his people. And he intercedes for Israel during this time. We see in verses eight and nine, he says, my Lord, if I have indeed found favor with you, my Lord, please go with us. Even though this is a stiff necked people, forgive our iniquity and our sin and accept us as your possession. And so what Moses is asking here is for God to renew his covenant with Israel. He asks for God to pardon their sins. He asked for God to be present with them, and he asked that that they would be God's possession. Even though they were unfaithful, God has provided Moses as a faithful intercessor to pray on his behalf. And as God listens to him, he does restore the covenant in verse 10. He tells them that he's making a covenant and this isn't a new covenant. He's restoring the covenant that he had already made with him. And we see this in him um, repeating a lot of the same laws that he stated earlier. And so in Moses, we see God provide a faithful intercessor for God's sinful people. But what's even better is we see in Moses the better intercessor that will come in the future. Moses points us forward to the intercessor that we have in Christ. And so right now, Christ is seated at, the right, at God's right hand and intercedes for us to God. We see this in Romans 8, 33, verses 33 to 34, where, it, where Paul says, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died, but even more has been raised He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. So even though just like the Israelites, we are unfaithful and sinners before God, we have an intercessor who speaks to God on our behalf. And so this is kind of like a pardon officer, okay? Do you guys know what a pardon officer does? Does that sound familiar? No. Do you guys know what a pardon is? When someone is pardoned for sins, This is an illustration I heard recently. I thought it was great. Um, So the president of the United States has the power to pardon anybody who's committed a federal crime. And so if you want to be considered for a pardon in the United States, you have to apply to the the office of pardon attorney, something like that. I can't find it in my notes now, but something like that. So you apply to this person and then they take your application to the president. And so you have someone standing between you and the president and he's pleading your case on your behalf and he's saying, you know, this person, they're guilty. You know, they committed a crime, they're in jail, but would you please forgive them? (laughs) Would you forgive them? And this is what Jesus does for us. Even though we're guilty before God, even though we deserve punishment from God, Jesus stands in between us and God and he pleads our case before him. And he says, would you just forgive them? Not because of anything that they've done, but because of what I have done. Because I lived the perfect life and I took their penalty 
Would you please forgive them? So if you're struggling with how unfaithful you've been to the Lord, trust in your faithful intercessor that God has provided for you. Because God is faithful even though we are unfaithful to him. Another way that we see God's faithfulness in, this, in the next section is through his faithful works. And so after God intercedes for Israel, God, after Moses intercedes for Israel, sorry, God restores his covenant with them. And he promises that he will do marvelous things in Israel. Not only will they know that they are God's people, but it says that the people around them will know that they are God's people because of what God is doing in Israel. And so it says this in verse 10, he says, look, I'm making a covenant. In the presence of all your people, I will perform wonders that have never been done in the whole earth or in any nation. All the people you live among will see the Lord's work for what I am doing with you is awe-inspiring. Israel, as God's covenant community, is actually going to display the wonderful works of God to the nations around them. How God treats them will show God's love for them and show how great of a God he is. And this is actually the inverse of what happens in Exodus chapter 32, where it tells us that Moses saw the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control, making them a laughingstock to their enemies. So here we see God reversing that. He says, actually, no, I'm gonna display my glory through you. The same people that were a laughing stock to their enemies just a few chapters before will show God's awe-inspiring work because God is faithful to them. And so we see a couple examples in the Old Testament of this. One of my favorite ones is the story of Balaam. Most people know more about Balaam's donkey than Balaam himself, but that's all right. And so in the book of Numbers, as Israel is making their way to the promised land, we see them defeating different kings on their way there. And there's one Moabite king that starts to get nervous about this. He doesn't really like what's going on. And so he has a pretty good idea where he is going to employ a pagan prophet to speak curses over Israel. And it takes a lot of convincing, and that's where the donkey part is involved, but you can go read about that later. But... Eventually, Balaam goes and he listens and he goes to, to try to speak these curses over Israel. And it's actually impossible for this pagan prophet to speak any curses over Israel. God prevents him from doing that. And in fact, he tries this four times and each time that he tries to speak a curse over Israel, he can only speak blessings over the people of Israel. And actually, during this time, he even prophesies about the Messiah that will come. God shows his power during this time. And even during this time, when all this is going on, Israel is being unfaithful to God, but God remains faithful to him. When it's time for the Israelites, when Joshua is making his way into the promised land, we see the story of Rahab in Jericho, where we see that God doing the marvels has been a witness to the nations around them. And Joshua to Rahab says, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard 
how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you. And when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings, you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and earth below. So the people of Jericho were terrified because of Israel and because of what God was doing with Israel. And they knew from these works that their God, Yahweh, was the God of heaven and the God of earth, even though they were unfaithful this whole time. And of course, these wonders continued throughout Israel's history until we get to the climactic wonder that is shown in Jesus Christ, who is both God and man. He was born of a virgin, and throughout his ministry, he does miracles. And the greatest sign that Jesus performed was the one that proved that he really was God when he died and came back from the death, proving that he was, in fact, God. After the resurrection of Christ, the people of God continued to do different works and wonders in the first century, miracles and healings and all these things. But there's one thing specifically that the New Testament states as the work that God does to a witness to the rest of the world in the New Testament. And this is a work that Jesus prayed for right before he died in John 17. In his high priestly prayer, right before Jesus is about to die, he prays for his disciples and then for all who will come to faith to them. And listen to what he says. Listen to this, church. He says, I pray not only for these, for the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And so Jesus tells us in this prayer that the way that the world knows that we are of God and the world knows who Jesus is is through our unity to one another the bond that sinners have who have been saved by the blood of Christ is stronger than any other bond. This is a quote from D.A. Carson that I think Raphael has used before, but it's still such a good quote. He says, ideally, however, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural coagulation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. The church is made up of natural enemies who can't help to love one another because of their bond of Christ. A story that I think highlights this better than anything else is a story of Elizabeth Elliot. And so Elizabeth Elliot and her husband, Jim Elliot, were missionaries to Ecuador in the early 1950s. And they were specifically trying to reach a group of people in Ecuador who were an unreached people group. 
And so if you don't know what an unbreached people group is, that means that if there is no missionary to go to these people, they will be born, live their entire lives, and die without ever having an opportunity to hear the gospel. And so during this time, Jim, along with a couple other missionaries, flew into Ecuador to try to share the gospel with these people who would have no opportunity otherwise to hear it. And after they made initial contact, a few days later, Jim and these other missionaries were killed by the people that they were trying to reach. But then, two years later, Elizabeth and the other family members went back to the same people they killed their family. They learned the language and they moved in and lived among them. And while they were there, they shared the gospel with these people and they came to know Christ through their witness. So at one time, there was a church in Ecuador that comprised of Elizabeth and some of the people that killed her husband. So I want to quote D.A. Carson again, that the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. Just as God performed wonders to the Israelites to witness to the pagan nations around them, God brings sinners who have nothing in common with each other other than the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul calls the church in Ephesians 4 the manifold wisdom of God. The unity that we have in Christ is a sign to the rest of the world of the goodness of God. In a world that loves to divide over the smallest issues, how much of a witness would it be if we were able to come together as the church even when there is seemingly nothing that we have in common? It's so easy to look at one another and point out our differences, but can we instead look together to the resurrection of Christ and unite under him as our Lord and Savior? Although the history of the church has been full of division, God has promised that one day the church will unite again, will come together and unite as he gives us a picture and revelation of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation all worshiping their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this will happen despite our unfaithfulness because God is faithful even though we are unfaithful. So as we've seen, we've seen God's faithful intercessor and God's faithful works, and now we will get to God's faithful warning. So to review so far, Moses has been up on the mountain interceding for Israel, and God has promised that he will restore his covenant with Israel. And what he promises next is that he's gonna drive out the other nations that are in front of him to get to the land that he has promised to them. And he warns Israel at this point, do not make a treaty with them. He says that their covenant with God is an exclusive covenant. They cannot have a covenant with God and other nations at the same time. To covenant with God is to deny all other covenants. He explains that it's not really the people in the area that's the problem, but it's actually the gods that they worship. It's their idolatry. So he tells them, do not make a treaty with the inhabitants of the land 
or else when they prostitute themselves with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. Then you will take some of their daughters as brides for, for your sons. Their daughters will prostitute themselves with their gods and cause your sons to prostitute themselves with their gods. So God does not want Israel to make a treaty with the inhabitants because it's essentially, it's synonymous with making a treaty with their gods. And one commentator makes the keen observation. He says, if Israel was so easily seduced into spiritual adultery in the desert, how much more may she succumb to it in the pagan cultures of the urban and agricultural centers of Canaan? So under the best circumstances, the Israelites fell to spiritual adultery. How much more if they're with these people? So God warns his people against making a treaty with them and from breaking his covenant again. They're to worship him exclusively. And so God explains this in verse 14. The Lord is jealous for his reputation. You are never to bow down to another God. He is a jealous God. In God's eyes, for Israel to make a covenant with the other nations is to make a covenant with their gods. But God is clear that his covenant is exclusive. They cannot worship other gods and idols. This is why he describes himself as a jealous God. And people don't like the term, they don't like to hear that God is jealous. But, because, but it is... But that's because most people don't understand the two different kinds of jealousy. J.I. Packer describes the two, the two types in knowing God. And the first he describes as sinful where he says, I want what you've got and I hate you because I haven't got it. And I would say, yeah, God is not that kind of jealous. That, that doesn't sound like him. And this is not what we mean when we hear of God's jealousy. God's jealousy could be described as the zeal to protect a love relationship or to offend it when it's broken. Packer uses the illustration of, a, of healthy marital affection. If a husband is a faithful and loving husband to his wife, he will be jealous to protect their relationship when the relationship is threatened. A husband who does not become jealous at the threat or presence of adultery in his marriage is an unloving husband. Packer puts it this way, the exclusiveness of marriage is the essence of marriage. Marriage is not marriage without exclusiveness. And in fact, the most beautiful part about marriage is the exclusiveness. Because it's only within the exclusiveness of marriage that true freedom is actually found. It's only within the boundaries of marriage that a man and woman can truly be intimate with one another and completely share their lives together. The benefits of marriage are only possible within these boundaries. Without them, there isn't a true benefit. And in the same way, God is jealous for his exclusive worship because it is within this exclusiveness that true freedom is found. It's within the boundaries of a covenant relationship with God that we are set free from our idols and our slavery to sin. It is within the boundaries of a covenant relationship with God that we can truly know and love him. This is the way that Jesus puts it in John 8. He says, truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. 
A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. Through the exclusive, exclusive worship of Jesus Christ, we find freedom. And this is why God is a jealous God. His jealousy reveals his covenant love for you. He desires to set you free. So if you're searching for freedom from your sins and from your idols, come to Christ and he will set you free because he is faithful even though we are unfaithful. Give thanks to your faithful intercessor, remember his faithful works, and heed his faithful warning. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are faithful, even in our unfaithfulness, Lord. We're thankful, <clears throat> and we're thankful for the opportunity to be set free from the blood of Christ. I pray that you would be with us the rest of the night, or the rest of the day. <laughs> In your name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from City Church, located in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. We hope God meets you where you are and doesn't leave you, but changes you through the work of his son. For additional information, please visit citychurchpa.org.